News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. And this show is made possible through the support of Transitions Life Care. I am Jason Kong alongside me, supporting uh, or representing Transitions Life Care, Cooper Lynn. Cooper, how are you? I'm doing great this evening. Thank you, Jason. Good, good. And also with Transitions Guiding Lights, as always, Nicole Bruno. Glad to be here. And I do believe Cooper does play a good supporting role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a, a C or D cast member. That's really what it is. No, no. You're uh, very, looking very dapper today, Cooper. For, for a Saturday evening, you've got your power tie on. You're, you're ready to go. I like to dress up for radio, Jason. Well, you're, you're the only one here. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in sweatpants and uh, I've got a, a beer hat on. I'm, I'm not dressed for the occasion. <laughs> But uh, no, to get more serious here, we're, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's today, and we've got two great guests here in the studio. And Cooper, we've got, uh, you know, there's, there's always facts and figures coming out. The research seems to be improving in terms of studying Alzheimer's and being able to identify symptoms and maybe trends that happen in the brain. And this is, uh, this is great news. It is good news. Um, I think it's also particularly good news that we have a strong chapter from the Alzheimer's Association here in the Triangle of North Carolina that uh, provides an option and some resources for caregivers who are struggling through this and representing the Alzheimer's Association today. We have Lisa Roberts, who's the executive director of the Eastern North Carolina chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And with her is Peggy Best, who is a licensed clinical social worker and is the associate director of programs and outreach. We appreciate both of you coming over here this evening. Thank you so much for having us. It's our pleasure. Thank you so much. We certainly have a powerhouse team. There's such a wealth of talent in your in your office, and we're just so gl- glad that you took some time out to be here with us today. So Alzheimer's disease is something near and dear to my heart, and I obviously know it is for both of you. And I know that the Alzheimer's Association just released the latest 2017 Alzheimer's disease facts and figures, and I know that that is something that I look forward to seeing every year, not because I want to see actually the bad news about how much this disease is exploding, but the fact that it gets attention and that hopefully we can bring some more dollars towards a cure and also helping people maintain a positive life while they have this terrible disease. Exactly. And thank you so much for having us. We are, we are very happy to be able to share the information with people because we know how important it is to get this information out to understand the devastating effects of Alzheimer's and related dementias. So help us understand, Peggy, you know, what is the scope of this? I mean, let's, let's first talk on a national level, and then if you have any information, drill it down to here in the state of North Carolina. Well, what we do know on the national level is that Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. And every 66 seconds, someone develops Alzheimer's. We know that there are more than 5 million Americans that are living with Alzheimer's in the United States today. And that number is expected to increase to about 16 million by mid-century, by 2050. What we also know in the state of North Carolina, to pare it down to local, is that we have 160,000 people that are living with Alzheimer's here in North Carolina that we know of, we understand that one of the biggest um, roadblocks that we face is some people are afraid to go to the doctors about their memory loss because of the stigma that is associated with Alzheimer's and related dementias. But we do project that by 2025, there is potentially going to be 210,000 people uh, that will be living with Alzheimer's in North Carolina. You know, one of the statistics that I saw that was quite staggering to me is that one in three seniors with Alzheimer's or another dementia 
that's what they die from. Exactly. But you know, I bet that's still an underreported number mm-hmm. because from what I know is a lot of times people may die from a pneumonia that might be related to a swallowing difficulty mm-hmm. because you have a dementia and so on and so forth. So I, I would venture to guess that that number might actually be higher. Did, does the association sort of believe that this is almost underreporting on that number or? We definitely believe that it's underreported. You know, one of the things... Uh, that we have found, especially from my experience in working in an Alzheimer's special care unit, uh, generally speaking, older adults can potentially die from coexisting conditions. They may die from a pneumonia. They may die from something else that coexists with Alzheimer's. And what we found is that sometimes people, um, you start to see decline in the memory um, based on a coexisting condition that may make the decline seem worse. And sometimes people don't get back to their formal level of functioning. But again, to go back to what you were saying, Nicole, we definitely believe it's underrated and underreported that there probably are more than one in three seniors who are dying from Alzheimer's or related dementia. And so when I see the statistic that in the last 17 years, we've had an 89% increase uh, in Alzheimer's uh, deaths, At the same time, we've seen decreases in heart disease. We've seen significant advancements uh, in the treatment of a variety of cancers. It's one of the reasons we recently had a discussion about the chronic treatment of cancer. Alzheimer's is is kind of odd. We have the chronic care of Alzheimer's, but it's totally incurable to our knowledge. I mean, we don't have the... um, idea that we're going to knock the death rate down at this point it's it's a massive increase almost 90 percent in 17 years that's right cooper but the the good news is that we have a lot of top researchers around the world including in north carolina that are looking at disease modifying drugs that basically will get to the heart of why alzheimer's needs to have a treatment that's going to change the trajectory of those deaths. So you're right. You know, the idea that um, it has increased and we haven't seen a decrease in the death goes back to what Peggy was saying about the fact that this is the only disease out of the top 10 with no way to cure it, no way to slow it, no way to prevent it. And that is the reason why there's such a concerted effort, not just here in North Carolina, but globally, to make sure that we actually do new drug treatments that are going to modify the disease so that we can hopefully one day have our first survivor. So looking here at the statistics, it kills more than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. Okay, so we paint, and I'm not saying anything against breast cancer and prostate cancer, but we paint the town pink. But And I know Alzheimer's, the color is purple, right? I'm wondering why you know, and I have a sense as to why this is, but I'm wondering what your feeling is as to why we don't give a lot of attention still to this day to this this disease and, and the way it impacts our older adults. Nicole, that's a great um, point of insight. And you're actually getting to something underlying that the association really is looking to tackle. That's the stigma. Peggy alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, there's still a stigma associated with Alzheimer's disease. And when someone has, you know, and again, cancer, breast cancer, I'm with you, um, they are all equally devastating. However, when someone has Alzheimer's, it's 
sometimes attributed to mental illness because of behavioral and communication issues and so forth. And it's, it still has a stigma that we are trying to make sure we tackle. Um, if you go to alz.org slash stigma, in fact, you'll find lots of information about how to cope with that and how to get the message out um, globally and certainly in North Carolina about the fact that it is nothing to be ashamed of. It is something that we are all dealing with, um, with our families and with our caregivers. And it's really important that we actually tackle that aspect of dealing with this disease. I think it's important that you've, you've touched on the good news. I mean, yes, the statistics are a little overwhelming. And when I look at them, and I'm already familiar with some of them, when I see the fresh statistics, I'm startled. Uh, when I see the increase in the prevalence of Alzheimer's in our uh, hospice patients and our hospice industry, it is startling. At the same time, there's real opportunities, and you this really creates an opportunity to support caregivers in a totally different way. And I hope we can explore more of that uh, in, the, in the next few minutes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would love to get to is, you know, okay, we've talked about some of the stats, but what about how do we know when we have something we really need to be concerned about in our own personal family unit? Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely get to that. We'll, we're talking with Peggy Best and Lisa Roberts of the Alzheimer's Association, and uh, we're going to see if we can learn some signs to be aware of, some symptoms that you may want to monitor. And we'll also be discussing some events that are coming up that, uh, you know, if, if you or a loved one is dealing with Alzheimer's, might be something that you might want to consider attending. We'll get to that in just a second. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, uh, a, a service of Transitions Life Care founded as Hospice of Wake County. You can always find them online at transitionslifecare.org. This is News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, made possible through the support of Transitions Life Care. Jason Kong, Cooper Linton, Nicole Bruno here in the studio, as well as our special guests with the Alzheimer's Association Eastern North Carolina chapter. We've got Executive Director Lisa Roberts and Associate Director Peggy Best with us here today and we're talking about alzheimer's and we're we're going to get to uh important symptoms and signs that you need to be looking out for uh because as as we just discussed this is a uh, unfortunately a, a growing disease and trend that we need to be aware of nicole and uh you know these are 10 important signs that uh as we learned before you know could potentially save a life yeah it sure can you know and I, you know and i'm all about getting you know the information out there about how devastating the disease is and the numbers of people it's going to affect but you know, people sitting in their family rooms listening to this tonight, you know, you might be wondering, well, geez, I'm starting to see some things going on with mom or dad or maybe even myself. And so some things, you know, we all do on a day-to-day -day basis and we might think twice about, I mean, I, I can tell you, I put the orange juice in the pantry the other day and found it the next morning. And I thought, well, that was just great. Or the or, the, or I put the uh, ice cream in the refrigerator and I thought, well, that was even better. That was two in a row. <laughs> 
But, you know, some of these things are just because we're having busy, hectic lifestyles. But other things, you know, I think if we see them starting to amass and they're starting to affect our quality of life day to day, that's when we should be concerned. So I'm really glad that, Peggy, you have, um, you know, some real, really the true 10 signs that we should be looking out for. And we could talk a little bit about each one and flesh it out with maybe a real world example. And I think that'll help folks listening understand what the true signs are. Well, thank you, Nicole. I appreciate that. I know the Alzheimer's Association has compiled a list of Know the Ten Signs. I always like to let people know that I preface this conversation and this statement by saying these do not happen in sequential order. Depending on the way that the progression of the disease goes, it can um, be one, two, three, or four. But sometimes we have people that will call us and say, well, they're doing number two or number three or number four. And so the way that we've outlined it is, you know, memory loss that disrupts daily life or challenges in planning or solving problems. A prime example might be somebody who has always handled their checkbook and all of a sudden they are writing checks everywhere for large amounts and the family is starting to notice that money's missing. If mom or dad is calling because they need to uh, borrow money to pay for something but they know that mom or dad has always had the money, then the family starts to step in and see what that problem is. Difficulty completing familiar tasks. We've had families report that mom or dad always cooked with a certain recipe, never had to use it, and now they have to go back and they can't follow the recipe anymore or they'll make up a reason. You know, that's the exact issue that a friend of mine brought to my attention this past summer. And they said, mom has always made this particular dish. It was kind of the family meal. And whether you liked it or not, you pretended you liked it in that family because that was mama's dish, okay? So you don't have to be happy. You just have to eat it. But but this time she made it, and it was totally inedible. Um, and the ingredients were off. It had not been properly cooked. There were raw raw ingredients. It wasn't – there was a safety issue involved, mm-hmm. raw chicken not being the best thing in the world. And she called me, and she said, I – what does this mean? I said, well, by itself, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But it probably does mean you need to have some heightened sensitivity to what else is going on mm-hmm. and start looking at some of those other tasks and functions in life. That's an alarm bell for some of us. You know, and touching back to the finance, financial side of things that you mentioned, one of the common things that families often say is hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's all these little things that suddenly mm-hmm. add up mm-hmm. and you know somehow mom has you know the next 20 years of good housekeeping magazine mm-hmm. paid for because every single time the magazine comes in the little inserts there and she sends another check but she has five months of utility bills not paid and you know those are those are you know true signs i believe of you know something that you should really be watching out for mm-hmm. as cooper said have a heightened sensitivity exactly You know, and one of the other things that we get a lot of conversations about, one of the 10 signs is trouble understanding visual images and spatial relationships. This is really important for families to understand and caregivers to understand, especially when it comes to driving. Mm. Because the, we know that when we drive, we have to coordinate, even for those of us who don't have memory loss, we, the amount of time that it takes to coordinate and look out rear view mirrors, Well, as the disease progresses, it tends to slow a person's reaction time and they're not able to process information as quickly as they used to, creates a safety risk, not only to themselves, but to other people that are on the road. You know, and difficulty completing familiar tasks as we spoke to before, but new problems with words and speaking or writing, misplacing things or withdrawal from work or social activities, changes in mood and personality. So bringing up the misplacing things, I was sort of making fun of myself earlier, but... 
my understanding is it's not necessarily the, the fact that you misplace something. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you're not able to retrace back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, losing your car keys is one thing. And we've all done it. And we've all sometimes completely lost our car keys forever. And, and they were in the great abyss with all the white socks that don't have a match. <laughs> but, I mean, I swear, in my house every week, they, they, they grow. <laughs> but, but, you know, other things, though, if you can sit back and think, well, okay, I, was, I, I misplaced my keys. I can't find them. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, my arms were full of groceries. Oh, that's probably then let me look in the doorknob and there are my keys. Mm-hmm. But if not being able to kind of go back in time like that and, and be able to do that, isn't that more of the differentiation? Exactly. Nicole, the way that you described about your thought process, mm-hmm. about how you're able to go, oh, I bought groceries, but maybe I set them down somewhere or I lost something. You have the capability to go back and retrace your steps. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I have let families know if you remember that you forgot and you're able to go back and retrace that steps and think about the steps that it took, you probably are okay. Just because you have memory loss doesn't mean you have dementia. And that takes us into thinking about, so what does a family do? It's very important that you go and you see a doctor. You see whether it's a doctor, a nurse practitioner, PA, someone who has experience evaluating and diagnosing dementia. But it's not just go see a doctor. I no. believe it's come with a list of notes. Exactly. Come with some examples because when you're sitting in front of that doctor and you're already worried about bringing up this topic about yourself or a loved one and they're happen- maybe even sitting there with you, mm-hmm. when they say, well, give me an example, you just kind of sit exactly. there and go, uh. Exactly. You just say, really come with concrete examples. Wouldn't you agree, Lisa? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Nicole. You bring up a great point. And as Peggy was outlining, just because these symptoms and these 10 warning signs exist, I really would encourage the listeners to visit our website or call our 800 number so you can basically understand that if this isn't one of those signs, there are also the counter to that that you brought up, Nicole, about what's normal age-related memory loss, the facts that you could retrace or you you remember that you forgot. That's a good sign. It's the severity and the impact and consistency of some of these warning signs that leads you to the doctor or should lead you to the doctor, as we're saying. So I encourage everyone to visit us at alz.org slash know the 10 signs for more information. Nicole, to that great point about what to bring to the doctor, we also have free tools and resources that you can literally download a list and it has note pages for you to actually write those specific examples and you can bring that to the doctor with you. And bring somebody you trust along with you. Because if you're having trouble retaining information, you're going to have trouble retaining what happened in the doctor's visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's even because of the stigma associated with it. Sometimes it's a matter of have a conversation with the doctor without that loved one present before that person comes so that you don't have to potentially embarrass that person. Because it is very embarrassing, especially when you're in the early, in the early stages to think that you know, something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, Nicole. It's very important to remember we don't ask families to do anything with a person in their family that they love that are suspected of memory loss that you're not asked to do for someone who doesn't have. Right. Bring in a history. Bring in the medications that you take or don't take. And what we have found is that it's very important to write down the history because you are the reliable historian for someone with memory loss. Now, if I... I'm looking at these issues right now. Are there resources or events that I could attend 
to find out more? Well, you know, we're, we're little after the event, but one of the things that we are very happy to partner with Transitions this year on and in the past years was the Research Symposium. It's important that we look at what's being done locally and globally and nationally in how we address um, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias and what's being done around the world and also locally. Uh, one of the next events that we have coming up is a uh, an event, dinner, and a movie in Wake Forest that's going to look, can Alzheimer's be stopped? So we have more additions, and we, we'll add them to our uh, event calendar at alz.org. Perfect. And again, that website is alz.org slash nc for the Eastern North Carolina chapter. Thank you so much, Lisa Roberts, Executive Director of the Alzheimer's Association, and Peggy Best, Associate Director of the Alzheimer's Association. And again, as we said before, you can find more information and the events that uh, were discussed here at alz.org slash nc. Coming up on Aging Matters, we're going to get into, well, just that. Aging Matters. Stick around. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF and Aging Matters, the care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find them online at transitionslifecare.org. News Radio 680 WPTF. Good evening. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find them online at transitionslifecare.org. And you may uh, be familiar with Hospice of Wake County, which is what Transitions Life Care was founded as. I am Jason Kong. Alongside me, as always, Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care, Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights. And Cooper, our show is called Aging Matters, but that's also the discussion that we're going to get into. We absolutely are. And the reality is aging is far more complex than it used to be. You know, you would have one doctor for your entire life, uh, small town concept. And the reality of that is things have changed dramatically. And so we've wanted uh, for this show to bring on Dr. Melanie Mincer. She is the lead physician and chief executive officer for Generations Family Practice based in Cary. And we'll let Dr. Minster go into more detail on this, but this is a unusual practice that has really was created in a very patient-centric model uh, and in a very holistic way of looking at patients individually. Dr. Minster, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're glad you're here today, and we've got Nicole Bruno with us from uh, Transitions Guiding Lights, who I believe you've had some experience with uh, – the program that she operates, the, the uh, Caregiver Support Center. And I'm sure that you're quite familiar. I just saw a recent study from the Pew Group, and they said currently, this is brand new information, which I think we all intuitively feel, but four out of 10 Americans are currently caring for an older adult loved one with a chronic condition, and 50% of all Americans expect to do so at some point in their life. That is huge when you just think about four out of 10 of us. I mean, sitting in this room right now. On my way to the studio today, I had a conversation with a personal friend and colleague who is dealing with an aging loved one and is making healthcare decisions right now. Thankfully, not in a crisis, but I think it speaks to that statistic, Nicole. Yeah, and those are you know four people right now, but that's not to say in another year or two who else could be involved with that. So this is something that really just touches everyone. I mean, it's it's, it's sure, hard to get away from. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. So talk to us a little bit about what you've experienced in your practice when it comes to the caregiving burden. Well, I just want to make a comment on on. Uh, the last topic you talked about, 
that it is really critical that we understand the needs of the caregiver because that care is priceless. It you if you had to hire somebody to provide that level of care, it would be upwards of $70,000 a year and with a stranger rather than a, a family member. And to provide that care at the end of life is really a wonderful gift, but we have to make sure that those caregivers don't burn out. And I see that a lot in my practice, uh, daughters and sons taking care of their parents or taking care of their siblings and how it really provides so much stress on them if they're still working. So your agency um, provides courses and care and resources for them to continue to take care of their loved ones at home. And a lot of times, I think you've noticed, people just don't know what they don't know. I mean, they're so confused. They enter this world. Suddenly, there's some sort of a crisis, and there's something they have to deal with. And you know, as, as Cooper was just saying on his ride along in here today, he was on the phone with somebody. I get a lot of people randomly sending me Facebook messages when they see my posts about caregiving. They think, oh, she can help. And this one lady just reached delicately, delicately reached out about a situation, and she wasn't quite ready for a lot of information. And my final words were to her, to her anytime I'm here. And she wrote back and she said, just knowing that gives me the courage and makes me feel empowered. Because just to know that there's somebody's got your back in this, because it's such a big, big journey. Right. And, and Guiding Lights is, um, you know, can provide education down to changing a catheter or, or dealing with a rash, all the way up to dealing with the last moments of life and what to expect. And I think having that resource for me as a physician has been wonderful because I spend time with them and I go do house vis home visits after my patients enter hospice care and they can't uh, come to the office. But oftentimes I feel like there, there isn't enough time to train everybody. And so having that resource is really wonderful. And also it gives the family a sense that there is a family behind them supporting them and a lot of energy is generated and uh, people overall feel very good about what they're doing, which allows them to, you know, continue to care for their loved ones and to not have them end up in skilled nursing facilities by themselves alone. And this is, I guess, the, the greatest gift that uh, Transitions has been able to give to the community because it is now comprehensive. And um, I've been interested in hospice care since medical school. I did a month of uh, hospice training uh, in 1979 at St. Christopher's Hospice with Dame Cicely Saunders, the mother of the hospice movement, uh, and Mary Baines, who was the first doctor that worked with her. And uh, I've seen it just blossom over the last 40 years uh, into a movement that is so embellishes the lives of community physicians like me, because I know that I don't have to be there all the time, provide everything, and that there are resources for the um, family that provides, you know, as Cicely Saunders used to say, provides um, relief from the total pain of the end of yeah. life, which is the physical, emotional, social, and spiritual components of dying. And those are things that occur both in the person that's dying and the caregivers. And so it's so important to be able to address those issues. And that's what the hospice movement does. And that's what it does for me. Dr. Mincer, how do these situations get started? How, how do you start a conversation about this in your practice? You seem to be very comfortable with these conversations and opening these conversations. And, and not everybody who's listening has a physician that is as comfortable opening a discussion about caregiver challenges or end-of-life decision-making or really what are my goals of care. How does, that, how does that present in your practice and how do you get that started? 
Well, ideally, you begin the conversation when the patient is not dying, is not critically ill. And um, most of the electronic medical records have a little checkbox that says, you know, end of life preparation or anticipatory guidance. And they want you, with people with chronic illnesses, to address these. And so oftentimes when I will have a new patient, independent of their age, I say to them, do you have advanced directives? Do you have a healthcare power of attorney? And so I begin that discussion at the first visit. So people know that it's on my mind and that I say to them, even people, you know, 50 years old, do you, do you have these things in line? Uh, and let's say somebody will develop a condition like chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which really isn't immediately life-threatening. It may, 10 years down the road, prevent, present a, a problem that uh, turns into acute leukemia. But you have a chronic illness that you know what the end will be, and you have to say to the patient, well, you know, now you have a chronic illness, and I want to make sure that I know what you want, just in case. And so you start the conversation I started with people who come in even when they're 50, but especially with new older patients. I ask them, how do you see um, the end of your life? You know, you're living now independently, but you might need to go into assisted living, or are you gonna, do you see yourself wanting to live with your children? Oftentimes the children will bring in their parents and we have this discussion together. So I think that that's the ideal way to have it. Now, everything isn't ideal. So oftentimes these discussions occur when someone gets a diagnosis either of cancer or congestive heart failure or of um, some other progressive neurologic disease um, that comes up. And then we need to uh, really have that discussion pretty early on in those diagnoses. And oftentimes I try to involve the subspecialists. So you're kind of avoiding the crisis by ad addressing this before the crisis has arrived. Right. You want to be prepared for the crisis because everybody's going to have an end-of-life issue, an end-of-life event. And for some people, they've already thought about it and they come to me with their plans and they say, you know, I, I don't want to be resuscitated. I don't want to be kept alive. And I make sure that, you know, I talk to them, their families. So, some other people don't want to talk about it at all. All right. So... In a few moments, we're going to come back, and I was hoping we could talk in a little more detail about how you explore, explore some of those conversations and what are the impacts on the caregivers, because you say you involve them in this discussion. Yes, I usually have that discussion, hopefully with a family member, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, and we'll continue that discussion in just a bit with Dr. Melanie Mincer, the lead physician and owner of Generations Family Practice. You're listening to Aging Matters, the show formerly known as Ion Health, and this is brought to you by Transitions Life Care, which was founded as Hospice of Wake County. You can find them online at transitionslifecare.org. This is News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, formerly known as Ion Health. Don't worry, the name has changed, but the cast is still here. I'm Jason Kong. Alongside me, as always, Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care, and our special guest today is Dr. Melanie Mincer, the lead physician and owner of Generations Family Practice. And uh, Cooper, we were having a, a 
discussion during the break about the concept of time and sort of how it applies to many things, but uh, time with your physician is uh, is kind of a, a crucial component here. Well, I was thinking, I went in the other day to um, have an urgent care visit, and I had a very stimulating uh, three-minute engagement with the a nurse practitioner. And for what I went in for, those three minutes was really, really all I needed to know. I mean, it was essentially you have the flu, and here's Tamiflu, and we'll see you in about a week, and you're going to feel miserable. Hope you don't die. You know, that was kind of the conversation. <laughs> and what came out of that is that that may be fine for some conversations, but what Dr. Mincer was touching on earlier is a far more expansive, engaging, emotionally complex discussion about end of life decision with a caregiver. And so, how do you fit that into your practice? Because this doesn't sound like a three- or 12-minute discussion, Dr. Menser. Well, I must say that um, I usually don't have uh, very many 12-minute uh, discussions uh, with patients unless it's on a Saturday and it's walk-in and it's the flu. And uh, I um, am seeing 14 or 15 people in four hours, which during the week I see between 10 and 14 patients. When I have a patient that I want to have an end-of-life discussion with, I schedule a 45-minute time slot. And fortunately, Medicare does compensate the physician for this special type of discussion. I think that it covers up to three um, appointments for end-of-life discussion. And if you put that on as an extra diagnosis, then you can, uh, when you're dealing with a patient with congestive heart failure or chronic obstructive lung disease, some of the chronic di care diagnoses, and then you put end-of-life discussion on, you get paid more money. So it is a myth that doctors don't get paid for talking about this. But, you know, you, you say it's a myth that doctors don't get paid to talk about it, and I believe that's the truth. But I also think, based on my years of experience in the field and some guests we've had on the show before, a lot of doctors don't like to talk about it. I think that you're absolutely right. And part of that is that only recently have they incorporated education about end-of-life issues into medical uh, curricula. When I taught at UNC, in two, up, I left in 2003, we had um, one hour on end-of-life discussion in the mm -hmm. first year curriculum. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot compared to other places. Now, it is incorporated into different rotations in family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, and some of the subspecialties, so the points get hit, hit on in the training, and that does train the doctor to at least know the content material. Learning how to talk to patients is something that we used to spend much more time with in the first year. Now it's incorporated in first and second year curricula, but the students are now trained with simulated patients, and always one of the discussions they have are end-of-life type discussion. So we specifically address that with the medical students. And so hopefully the younger physicians will be more comfortable than the older physicians. And one of the other things I think we have an issue with, with the, which I've heard as a theme in the past, is we are in such a rich area as far as research and medical advancement and opportunities to try all these trials to keep trying to prolong life. And, you know, it must be hard sometimes when you're, when you're talking with a family and they hear of a potential research trial that could potentially prolong life. Nobody really knows if you're getting the real drug or the placebo, I mean, that you must really be up against a rock and a hard place sometimes. Yes, and I think that you're always going to have something else to offer the patient. The question is, and needs to be said both by the primary care doctor and the subspecialist and the research um, physician, what is the quality of life for this person going to be? Mm -hmm. Some people really want 
everything to be possibly done at the end of life. Mm -hmm. And they are more concerned about gaining extra life than they are having quality time. Other patients say, you know what, I don't want to spend the last six weeks of my life throwing up being doped up, or I don't want to be in incredible pain, or I just want to be home. I don't want to be going in and out of the hospital. And that discussion needs to happen every time something else is offered. Uh, I work with some very good oncologists, um, Mark Graham and Suzanne Kirby, and they have these discussions with their patients all the time. And it makes it easier for me. Uh, sometimes I will say to them, do you think this person is ready for hospice care or palliative care? And they'll say, I'm not sure. Or they'll say, I've already mentioned it to them. So I'm, we're lucky in Cary that we have those kind of resources. Also, uh, Rex um, Hematology Oncology yeah. incorporates um, hospice into the discussion. So I think in, certainly in the triangle, we're very lucky that we have educated physicians and resources. One of the uh, oncologists that's uh, been uh, associated with Transitions Life Care for years once made a great point to me. He said, the question is not whether there's something I can do. The question is, is there's something I can do that's going to be meaningful and helpful to the patient. And the question's also often posed to me, well, doctor, isn't there something you can do? Yes, there's always, always something, something can I can do. do. It isn't necessarily going to be doing something that improves your life and improves your experience while you're while you're here. And I thought it was a, an interesting distinction, and he felt like that that was a challenge he has with families because there's this idea, particularly in this area, as Nicole mentioned, there's always hope. There's always an option. Well, there isn't a way to beat mortality yet. There's not a way to beat mortality, and I really think what patients want to hear is that their doctor is going to be there with them. Not that, you know, we're going to send them off to the next oncologist to the next study, but I will be there with you, and you don't have to worry. We'll make sure you're not in pain. We'll make sure mm -hmm. that you're taken care of, and we'll support your family. And I think that oftentimes allows patients to really get incredible emotional relief because mm -hmm. the sense of abandonment, they're, they're yep. going to be left off in a hospital or end up with not seeing their doctor. And this is a problem with doctors not making house calls anymore. There is an organization, Doctors Making House Calls, that take care of patients in their homes. But um, it used to be a part of your regular care to go visit people at home. Now... I think it's harder, and I, I really encourage um, physicians to try to do house calls, although they say, oh, I don't get compensated, but you know, you do get compensated. It's, it's a matter of choice, and, or making it easy for the patient to come into your office, making it you know, hours that the family can get there. Mm -hmm. We have evening hours, sometimes the family brings somebody in at six o'clock when they come home from work, and that makes it easier. So I think with the increasing access to primary care that the healthcare system is proposing, the current healthcare system is proposing, um, this may make it easier to take care of patients uh, with continuity for a longer time at the end of life. So it's not that often that we have the opportunity to speak with a community physician of your reputation and caliber here on the show, and it's quite a privilege to have you on here. I'm kind of curious to know from your perspective, what are some of the most common myths and misconceptions that you hear from families, and probably a lot of people have it in their mind listening to the show today, about end-of-life care, particularly hospice and palliative care? Well, I think... Um, Dr. Kevorkian didn't do us any favors when he advertised um, quick end of life. And so I think for many people, they think that you go into hospice and, you know, someone's going to give you morphine and they're going to end your life. And that's not what hospice is. Far from it. 
Um, so I think that's one myth that, you know, we're not Amen. a death machine. Okay. I think the second myth is that unless you have cancer, you can't be getting hospice care. So if you have a disease that doesn't kill you within three or four weeks, you're not eligible for hospice. Hospice care doesn't have a time limit on it. It used to be, oh, you had to have six, you have to, had to die within six months. And so everybody says, well, how am I going to know I'm going to die in six months? So now some of the chronic care conditions like congestive heart failure and chronic obstructive lung disease and um, some of the other cancers and um, diseases where people can't eat and they're just sort of fading away, right. but you don't know when they're going to to die, we used to think that we couldn't provide care for those patients. And now hospice is there for them. So they have really high quality gotcha. care without a time limit. So I think the time issue used to be a big barrier. And I think the last issue is that your own doctor can't take care of you, that you have to, you know, get somebody else to take care of you. And really, um, the hospice movement and the palliative care movement allows primary care doctors like me to essentially co-manage their patients that they've had for 10, 20 years. And so there isn't the sense of abandonment and it's really gratifying for the physician to be able to get the help they need because we don't all have the training on what to do. And so we can pick up the phone and say, hey, one of my patients is on the palliative care service or on the hospice service and I don't know how to manage their pain. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for for your insight as a primary care physician on these challenges. If folks would like to reach uh, Generations Family Practice, how's the best way that they can do that? Well, like all good new practices these days, we're on social media. You can like us on Facebook. Um, you can put us into um, the uh, uh, Google your, your, your as generationsfamilypractice.com, and our website will come up. Perfect. Thank you so much, and thank, thank you for you. coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Dr. Melanie Mincer, again with Generations Family Practice. As she said, you can find more online uh, if you want to Google Generations Family Practice. You can also find a link uh, on our website if you go to WPTF.com and find the Aging Matters page. And unfortunately, we are out of time for this week, but I would like to thank Lisa Roberts, Executive Director, and Peggy Best, Associate Director of the Alzheimer's Association, Eastern North Carolina Chapter. If you missed any part of the show, you can go online wptf.com and go to the aging matters section you can find full episodes there as well as all the associations and links and stats and figures that we mentioned today we look forward to having you back with us next saturday evening at seven you're listening to aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you on news radio 680 wptf